It's a pleasure to be able to talk about religion. That is my favorite topic. And to address the vexing questions that are ours as Americans when we think about religion, which seems to be ever more often these days. Today we had the chance to hear our president sworn into office and to watch, as I did with fascination, the ways in which our presidential inaugural was framed with the bookends of prayer by two Protestant ministers and the ways in which the president referred to his faith and the various faiths of America. And increasingly, in looking at these events, I am interested in the difference between what is our religious language and what is our civic language and the difference between them and the ways in which they become confused one with another. These are some of the most vexing issues in American religion today and in American politics as well. Are we really on common ground or is it more like a battleground? And are we trying to find some steady ground under our feet? These are important questions. And the questions are even more complex when we imagine ourselves to be among the many people, many millions of immigrants who have come to America in the past 40 years and have come from all over the world and listen to these state occasions as new Americans, as Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus or Sikhs or as deeply secular people for whom America's insistence on having no established state religion has been a huge relief coming from the parts of the world they have come from. So when we listen to these public occasions with the ears of one another, so to speak, we are alert to the complexity of our religious questions in America, both as citizens and as people of faith. We are a multi-religious nation, and the issues that I want to speak about this evening are issues that we sometimes refer to as church-state issues. That's sort of a misnomer. But there are issues that we argue about, uh, whether it's church or whether it's mosque or synagogue or temple or no religion at all. Religious freedom, which is one of the first freedoms that we guarantee in our Bill of Rights, is a recipe for religious diversity. We pledge ourselves to the non-establishment of religion and to the free exercise of religion. So we should not be surprised that we have so many religions in America and that wrestling with what it means to be a multi-religious nation is among our many topics of national identity seeking. I think of James Madison when he wrote in the memorial and remonstrance as the years led up to the preparation of our Constitution, whilst we assert for ourselves the freedom to profess, observe the religions that we believe to be of divine origin, we cannot deny an equal freedom to those whose minds have not yet yielded to the evidence that has convinced us. And so it is that Constitution that uh, our President has preserved, has promised to preserve and protect and defend, is really grounded on that insistence on religious freedom. 
In the past 40 years since the 1965 Immigration and Nationalities Act was passed, both the racial and the religious complexity of America has changed uh, markedly. And this is no news for those of you who live in California. You've been in the midst of these great demographic changes in the past century. Uh, the massive shifts that have put words like diversity and multiculturalism on the map of American discourse and into the mainstream of American life. The census of 2000 revealed that fully 10% of us across America are foreign-born. And here in San Diego, you're hardly surprised to see the flowering of Asian-American religious life in America or the richness of Latino religious culture since Mission San Diego first began two and a half centuries ago in 1769, even before the Revolutionary War. Yours is a city that leans into the Pacific and has long known the traffic back and forth across the Pacific. And California, in many ways, is a testing ground, the place where we will discover perhaps sooner than in other parts of the United States whether the common ground we share is firm enough to support the many religious and cultural communities that have come to comprise our land. In the past 40 years, since the new immigration has come to the United States, people have come from all over the world the largest groups from Asia and Latin America, and have brought not only their economic ambitions and their political dreams of freedom, but their Bhagavad Gita's and their Qur'ans and their images of the Bodhisattva Guanyin and of the Virgin Guadalupe. And over the past 40 years, they have built mosques and Islamic centers and Hindu, Jain, and Buddhist temples and Sikh gurdwaras and Hispanic and Vietnamese churches, and these immigrants have negotiated the new and multiple identities that all of us have in the American context. They've discovered, among other things, the leverage of religion and religious organizations in American civil society. They're more likely to be heard in the halls of Congress if they come as Muslims than if they come as advocates from their native land. For we have a privileging of the importance of religious uh, discourse and religious freedom. And some of these immigrants would surely describe themselves as secular and non-religious as well. Some have had quite enough of the dominance, even the oppression of religion in their home countries. And they're relieved to be in a society that recognizes not only the freedom of religion, but the freedom not to be religious if they should so choose. And these new immigrants have made America's ethnic and racial composition more complex and more varied, even as they have magnified the reality of our religious diversity. The Pluralism Project, uh, which is based at Harvard University and which I launched really out of the experience of recognizing the increasing multicultural, multireligious nature of my own university, it now involves affiliates at uh, colleges and universities across the country. And we have been engaged for nearly a decade, more than a decade, in documenting this changing religious landscape, in trying to interpret it both uh, academically and in a public and civic way. And there are other 
colleagues who were doing this as well, the uh, colleagues in the Department of Religious and Theological Studies at the University of San Diego have uh, a religious communities project where they have done some documenting of the communities in San Diego, the Islamic Center of San Diego, which will be observing as all the mosques in San Diego, the Eid al-Adha in the next uh, day or two, the Shiva Vishnu Temple of San Diego and the Sri Mandir as well. There are old Buddhist communities here, like the Japanese down on Market Street, whose community was interned after Pearl Harbor, and the Shifang Buddhist Temple associated with the Taiwanese humanistic Buddhist movement, building the pure land here on earth. And the Sikh community, of course, whose plan to build a gurdwara with gold domes aroused a significant zoning controversy a few years ago. Was it really in keeping with the Hispanic style of architecture? Uh, were these gold domes going to somehow disrupt the look and feel of San Diego until someone in the city council stood up and said, let's go for the gold? And the gold domes. I haven't seen them yet. If you know where they are, let me know. I'll be driving out there tomorrow. But to, to disrupt the, the, the look and feel of our cities and towns with something new and something different. The transformation of America's landscape has been somewhat gradual. For the most part, our pluralism project researchers have had to go out and look for it. That's what we've done. The Hindu temple might be in a former convenience store in Sunnyvale, California, or in a former church at the corner of Polk and Pine in Minneapolis. The mosque might be in a former U-Haul dealership in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or a bowling alley in Hartford, Connecticut, or a gymnasium in, in Oklahoma City. For the most part, you could drive right by them and not notice anything different at all. I remember the Vietnamese temple that I visited um, when I was driving around Claremont a few years ago in a simple home that looked like everything else on the street until you lifted up the two doors of the two-car garage and there was the entire uh, spectrum of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and uh, on Sundays the garage doors were open and the driveway was filled. In a whole range of ways, this diversity has been invisible, and yet gradually more and more visible in America with dramatic architectural statements that enunciate the presence of new communities. The building of new and spectacular Hindu temples in Lanham, Maryland, or Wilmington, Delaware, or Nashville, Tennessee, um, really all over the country. There are 800 of them or more now, and many of them architectural statements of Hindu life designed and oriented by the uh, ritual architects of South India and uh, built by American engineering firms. The Buddhist monasteries of rural Minnesota, for example, or of urban San Diego, and Islamic centers, places uh, uh, in old places like Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where the Mother Mosque of America was first built in the 1930s and where a new mosque now stands with its minarets and domes. Or a new mosque being built in downtown Boston in Roxbury. Or the beautiful Sikh Gurdwaras that are now 
part of the landscape of El Sobrante and Fremont and, uh, and uh, suburban New Jersey. Or the new Jane Temple I was just hearing uh, from a student about that is uh, emerging and about to be completed in Buena Vista. All of these immigrant religious communities now making a statement of their presence and their belonging and their uh, distinctive contributions in the American landscape. And when a new temple is built in Wilmington, Delaware, the first Hindu temple ever to be built in Delaware from the ground up, that is an important moment in the history of the Hindu community worldwide and in the history of the state of Delaware. And someone should be there studying it. And for the most part, uh, that someone has been someone from the Pluralism Project. Our website uh, is www.pluralism.org. You can look it up, and we have a news service as well where we sort of scour local newspapers around the country to find out what's happening in the realm of religious diversity and America's new religious communities week after week. And just going to that website in this last week, I noticed that since the 1st of January, there's been a Hindu temple uh, dedicated in Eppington, New Hampshire, with the uh, installation of the goddess Saraswati. And the Deseret News in Utah reported the creation of a new mosque community in Utah County. And the Dallas Morning News reported that the Flower Mound Town Council had approved the application of space for a new mosque to replace the makeshift facilities that the community had occupied in a Super 8 motel for the last three years. This is not, however, only about building buildings. It also is about building organizations and building new communities in American life. It's about the presence of new communities in networks of advocacy and participation that have become uh, traditionally part of the American scene. We see the presence and participation of new immigrant communities in advocacy organizations like the Sikh Coalition, which has taken up issues of Sikh civil rights, especially in the wake of 9-11, when Sikhs were alarmed by the many assaults on turban Sikhs in communities throughout the country and undertook a Sikh coalition to begin to bridge the gap of awareness that seemed to be there between other American communities and the Sikhs. And the news from the Sikh community in this first month of 2005 is the ongoing saga of a Sikh who has tried to gain permission to wear his turban as an employee of the New York Transit Authority. And that has been a years-long battle. And then there are groups like the Muslim Public Affairs Council, based in Los Angeles, or the Council on American-Islamic Relations, among any number of Muslim advocacy groups that are responding to discrimination and civil rights violations of Muslims and raising a voice on continuing issues of racial and religious profiling. And interestingly, in this past year, 2004, we've seen the ripening of political participation. So it's not just about buildings, it's not just about advocacy organizations, it also is about participating in the very functions of American democracy. 
and the Muslim American Task Force on Civil Rights and Elections was uh, energetically engaged during this past year in registering Muslims to vote, in having town hall meetings about the issues, in uh, developing more than uh, the registration of more than four million Muslim voters in the United States. I might say, in fact, that 77% of them are said to have voted for John Kerry, uh, stung in some ways by the civil rights uh, constrictions that have accompanied the last three years of, uh, of the Bush White House. The Sikhs developed a campaign called Every Vote Counts and registered Sikhs to vote and educated themselves about the, Amer about the political process. The Buddhist Peace Fellowship based in San Francisco in the Bay Area had an election session in Oregon where they all drove north to register voters in Oregon and meditate per for part of the day and work in activist uh, political work for part of the day. And among the South Asian Americans, there were organized caucuses for both presidential candidates, and a Republican, Bobby Jindal, was elected for the first time a South Asian American immigrant to the United States Congress from the state of Louisiana. So while the dominant news on the religion front following the election was the clout of evangelical Christians, it may well be that the long-lasting significance of election 2004 was the entry into active voter participation of many religious groups that had not been heard from previously, either on their own as Muslim coalitions, for example, or as part of uh, an interfaith uh, process that might be represented by a group like the Interfaith Alliance that brings people together from across the faith spectrum to uh, weigh in on some of the church-state issues in the American uh, public square. And then what about service? That too is one of the markers of American religious life. This past month, in the wake of the catastrophic tsunami in South Asia, Americans' immigrant religious communities, especially Asian communities, were among the first to respond. The Hindu temple in Pittsburgh, for example, held a prayer service, drawing on the comfort of the Bhagavad Gita, the assurance that the soul does not die when the body dies. They collected tens of thousands of dollars and immediately sent a delegation from that largely South Indian community to Tamil Nadu. And so did Hindu temples in Middletown, Connecticut, Atlanta, Georgia, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in Detroit, probably here in San Diego as well. The landmark Buddhist Pure Land Temple in Hacienda Heights in uh, the L.A. area had an interfaith service immediately in the pounding rain, attended by many hundreds of people, and donated $100,000. And Buddhist temples here in Escondido and San Diego took up collections for the Thai community. And the Muslim Community Center pledged the profits of its Eid festival this weekend for tsunami relief. And a Muslim community in Salt Lake City joined with the Mormons to send a cargo plane filled with supplies from Utah to Indonesia. So the impetus for service of this sort is also a signal both of participation, responsibility, and belonging in a new religious America. Now, I sketch this portrait 
the landscape, the organizations, the political participation, the service, in part because this is largely unnoticed in the mainstream, if we can speak of that, life of America. This is, however, who we are. Even though 80% of us are Christian, it is true today that our multi-religious reality is something that involves all of us. Uh, there are today more Muslims than Episcopalians, to be sure. Uh, there are about as many Muslims as Jews. And yet on a day like today, when we celebrate what President Bush called the durable wisdom of our Constitution, we recognize that the dignity and the rights and the participation of communities in the American project are not decided by majority rule. Whether you are an Episcopalian or a Zoroastrian, you have an equal right to the protection of that Constitution of the United States. And yet, there are people very anxious about this. Isn't it so? One of my colleagues at Harvard, Samuel Huntington, has recently written a book with the title, Who Are We? Challenges to American National Identity. And in this book, he argues that America has been defined largely by its core Anglo-Protestant identity, and that we Americans must embrace that core identity lest we begin to disintegrate into a conglomerate nation that is more like Europe than like ourselves. And it's the Anglo-Protestant identity, he said, that, quote, transcends our sub-national ethnic religious identities. Uh, and though the book is complex and filled with polls and statistics and convinced in a way that the very diversity uh, that we represent is dangerous and that the diversity I study is a threat to American policy, polity, it's not surprising that I disagree with much of what he has to say, but among my strongest disagreements is with his very understanding of diversity. He writes, many elite Americans were no longer confident of the virtue of their mainstream culture and instead preached a, quote, doctrine of diversity and the equal validity of all cultures in America. And elsewhere he speaks of the cults of diversity and multiculturalism. Well, I know that for those of you who live and work in California and outside the ivory tower, uh, it is patently clear that diversity is not a doctrine or an ideology, nor a cult of liberal academia, but a challenging, indeed challenging, and enriching fact of our national life. And multiculturalism is not a doctrine preached, but a reality lived lived in all the places we come together on the common ground of our civic life, whether it's public schools or hospitals or city councils and zoning boards, grappling with the meaning of our diversity is part of the reality of our lives. And looking, ever looking, for the possibilities of shaping a vibrant democratic society from all this diversity is certainly one of the most important challenges of our time. One thing Professor Huntington does get right, however, and that is the title. 
Who are we? It's an important question. It's perhaps the most important question that we ask. The we question, that powerful two-letter word. Um, who do we mean when we say we? And thinking about that question can serve to clarify which rhetorical voice we are using when we speak. We all use many we's. Do we mean in this context we Christians or we Jews or we Muslims? Do we mean we Americans? We the people of the United States of America? Who is included? Who is excluded? Who is simply elided in the we's that we use? The big question of identity is not so much the I question, though we wrestle with that, and certainly in the college years we do, but the we question. And are we using a religious we or a civic we? And it is our question in the United States and in every part of the United States today. And what I'd like to do for the rest of my time with you is talk about two contexts, related yet distinct, in which we interpret all this religious difference in a civic voice and in a religious voice. On the one hand, religious diversity is a civic and political question. It is a question addressed to us as citizens. Are there constraints on religious freedom? Are there none? Um, is our multi-religious nation firmly secure on common ground, on constitutional ground? And as we look around the world, there are many civic answers to that kind of question. There are a lot of multi-religious nations, India, Malaysia, Indonesia, the United Kingdom, France. We all have a different constitutional basis on which to adjudicate questions of religious difference. How do we, as people of various traditions of faith, relate to each other as co-citizens of a nation? Is one tradition dominant, perhaps established, as in England, where Christianity is established, or actually the Church of England is established, or as Islam is in uh, Malaysia, an official religion? Or is the state officially secular with no established religion, uh, perhaps militantly so, as in France, where headscars and yarmulkes and turbans in the public sphere are seen to be an affront to the secular state? Or what about America, where a teacher who tried to send a child home for wearing a headscarf to school would sooner or later be reprimanded and perhaps fired? However, the interpretation of religious diversity is not only a civic and political question, it's also a question of faith, a theological question, if you will for people who are adherents of a particular faith. It's an old question, but it's become ever more persistent in, uh, in our world the closer we come to one another. Given the fact that there are people of, obviously, of many religious traditions, many ways of being religious, how do people in each tradition think about one another? Are all of our religions true? Uh, is no religion true, if you're an atheist, perhaps? Is one religion true and it happens to be mine? Um, this is a theological question, an interpretive question of difference that is rooted in religious language. And distinguishing between our theological and our civic languages, between the spheres in which we think about religion and the diversity of religious traditions, either as religious people or as citizens, is absolutely essential. We're not arguing here that religious discourse is somehow 
private, whereas civic discourse is public. Rather, both religious and civic speech are very public, but they are different. They are addressed to different audiences. They employ a different rhetoric of persuasion. They are substantiated with different footnotes and appeals to authority. And the we that George Bush speaks inside St. John's Church across the ellipse from the White House when he is in a worship service cannot be the same we that he brings to the public arena when he is addressing us all as president. One needs to change the we in one's voice and indicate the way rhetorically in which that change takes place. Now let me start with the religious, the theological part, because I know that interests people and it certainly interests me. Um, A lot of the questions we ask and speak of about religious diversity are really theological questions. They require us to mine the depth of our own religious tradition, if we have one, to investigate our attitudes toward the religious other. And that question becomes increasingly acute the closer we live in proximity. Let me use an example from my uh, book, Encountering God, where I cite uh, the novelist Kaim Potok, who wrote a book called The uh, Book of Lights. And in that, there is a rabbi who is sort of the hero. He is a rabbi who's serving in Korea during the Korean War. And he travels to Japan on a leave and is traveling with a Jewish companion and comes to what we presume is a Buddhist temple. We're not really told if it's Buddhist or Shinto or what. And he observes a man who is standing there at prayer with his hands folded before him and his eyes closed. And the rabbi turns to his friend and says, do you think our God is listening? His friend says, you know, I don't know. Never really thought about that before. And the rabbi says, well, if not, why not? And if so, then what are we all about? Now that is a theological question. Is our God listening uh, to the prayer of this man who is obviously deeply engaged in something that I would interpret as prayer? Um, If not, why not? Why would the God who created heaven and earth and everything in it not be listening to this ardent prayer. But if so, who are we? The people who have so uh, uh, long claimed the ear and the special relationship with God. Now that's a question that people could ask in many different religious contexts. It's a question of how we think about God, not really a question about God's ears or God's capacity to hear, Um, It also is a question of how we think about our neighbors, how I regard this person. Um, And it's the kind of question that we engage in discussion with on what we would have to call theological grounds. It's a theological question, and by that I don't mean some sort of lofty thing that only people in universities that are called theologians uh, think about. We all think about theological questions when we interpret one another and when we interpret the world through the lens of our religious perspective. Last week I had a student email me who is a Muslim from St. Louis, And she is on the Hajj now. She has 
making her pilgrimage to Mecca. I looked for her on TV amidst the millions who were there. And she emailed me to ask if she could offer uh, any prayer that I would like to have offered when she was there. I was very touched by that, and I responded that I would also offer prayers for the success of her pilgrimage. Um, We think about a question like that in religious terms. Um, Those are, that raises the question of what we in any religious tradition mean by that act of prayer and the prayer of our neighbors. And when uh, Kirby John Caldwell ended his prayer at the end of the inauguration this time, um, he ended it this way, respecting people of all faiths, I humbly submit my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. And that was an interesting, he had not done that at the last inauguration. He had just prayed right out there in the name of Jesus Christ as if that was the only stamp that would work if he were sending this prayer heavenward. Um, So this was a little bit of a uh, different flavor of discourse. But these are the theological questions. They come up ever more often. Atonement Lutheran Church here in San Diego is right next door to San Diego's largest Islamic center. Uh, The Lianhua Buddhist Temple in Garden Grove, a Vietnamese temple, is right next door to uh, a UCC church. We are living as neighbors in a pluralistic society, and we interpret one another as neighbors. And theological language always comes out of the context of a particular religious tradition. It might be a Christian tradition. It might be a Jewish tradition. I've been reading this fall the the, um, works of uh, a Jewish rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, from Britain, who writes about the the term tzedakah, or justice, uh, uh, compassion in the Jewish tradition. And he, the book is called The Dignity of Difference, and I would actually recommend it to any of you. It should be on our reading list. But he is what you would call a pluralist, um, a pluralist Jew. And he puts it this way. Can we Jews... Can we, people, recognize God's image in one who is not in my image? Can we recognize God in the face of the stranger in this global age which has turned us into a society of strangers? Can I, as a Jew, hear the echoes of God's voice in that of a Hindu or a Sikh or a Christian or Muslim? Can I do so and not feel diminished but enlarged? And then if I think of a pluralist... uh, uh, Muslim. I think, for example, of, uh, of Tariq Ramadan, who writes uh, in Western Muslims and the Future of Islam, the issue is to find out how the Islamic universal accepts and respects pluralism and the belief of the other. The centrality of Tawheed in the message of Islam is what I would strongly emphasize. Tawheed is the doctrine of the oneness of God. It is Tawheed, this principle on which the whole of Islamic teaching rests. It is the axis and point of reference on which we Muslims rely in dialogue. The intimate awareness of the oneness of God forms the perception of the believer who understands that plurality has been chosen 
by the one, that he is the God of all beings, and that he requires that each be respected. It is out of this conviction that I, as a Muslim, engage in dialogue. Now, that is a, another sort of theological point that comes up out of one's religious convictions. And theologically, one can be an exclusivist. There is no other religious tradition that is right but mine. An inclusiveness, inclusivist. Of course, God hears all the prayers of these people, even of this man who is engaged in prayer here, but it is our God who does the listening. Uh, or one can be a pluralist, that we have not somehow managed to circle the wagons around God and understand everything uh, about the one we call God, that we might actually learn something from that dialogue with our neighbor. So I lift these up as examples of theological speech that address the question of religious diversity and religious pluralism. But these are testy waters, and we get confused very quickly. And let me give you an example. In the fall of 1999, the International Board of the Southern Baptist Convention published a prayer guide to enable Baptists to pray for the souls of Hindus during the fall festival of Diwali, their festival of, of lights, as we see, let there be light here. They have a fall festival of the kindling of lights. Um, and that prayer guide speaks of the 900 million Hindus who are, quote, lost in the hopeless darkness of Hinduism, who worship gods which are not God, and the Christians responsible for this guide seem to have no trouble at all speaking of our God in Christian exclusivist terms. But the problem, of course, was that it completely misunderstood the nature of Hindu faith. And the Southern Baptists in Houston at the, South at the Second Baptist Church were very likely surprised to find over a hundred protesters and picketers uh, outside their church one Sunday morning when Diwali came around that fall. Many of these Baptists perhaps didn't realize that these were their neighbors here in Houston they were speaking of, not simply some imagined, oppressed, poverty-ridden Hindu villagers halfway around the world. And the American Hindus who carried placards protesting the Southern Baptist prayer guide did not do so because they were so adverse to being prayed for, um, but because the characterization of their religious tradition was so ill-informed and ignorant and hurtful. It hurt their feelings, and it also made them angry. And they had placards that said, religious intolerance is un-American. And there were several of them so incensed by the outrage that they wrote a letter to Janet Reno at the Department of Justice and only gradually realized that it was not against the law for Southern Baptists to believe and say what they did about the Hindu faith. To Hindus, it was religious slander to speak of them as lost in hopeless darkness. To the Southern Baptists, it was religious belief. And that Hindu-Christian theological discussion, at least in America, is still in its infancy, whether it is in the venue of interreligious dialogue um, that Hindus and, uh, and Christians need to, uh, need to discuss these matters. Uh, the problem is that that uh, venue is fairly slight at the moment. But these are the questions that need to be referred to that religious discourse. They are important and fascinating questions. How do Hindus understand the multitude of their gods? Uh, how do Baptists 
understand or misunderstand Hindu gods. And the theological ideas of Hindus and Baptists are not governed by our Constitution, but their mutual commitment to the free exercise of religion is. Uh, God does not regulate, uh, or the Constitution does not regulate what kind of God you believe in. A similar issue arose when the first Hindu was asked to offer prayers in the U.S. Congress in the fall of 2000. It was a state visit of the Prime Minister of India, and the priest was from the Shiva Vishnu Temple in Parma, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland. And he stood in the well of Congress, a joint session of Congress, and offered his prayers in Sanskrit and in English. And immediately there was a Christian group, the uh, Family Research Council, that issued a statement of alarm, seeing that a Hindu invocation uh, in Congress was a move toward what it called ethical chaos, and saying it was, quote, one more indication that our nation is drifting from its Judeo-Christian roots. The next day, however, the group issued a clarification. We affirm the truth of Christianity, but it is not our position that America's Constitution forbids representatives of other religions than Christianity from praying in Congress. Uh, alas, they really did get it right that time. And here, the uh, famous dictum of Thomas Jefferson, which he wrote as part of his notes on the Virginia Statement on Religious Freedom, is perhaps important. He said, the legitimate powers of government extend to such acts only as, as are injurious to others. But it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Here we encounter, I think, in these two little examples, the distinction between our civic and theological views. No matter how we think about or evaluate religions different from our own, no matter how we think about religion as a whole, if we're atheists or wholehearted secularists, the covenants of citizenship are what place us on common ground. And it's easy, however, for these to be conflated. And in the fall of 2000, a group of congressmen made an official request that a senior military officer, Lieutenant General William G. Boykin, be dismissed as Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for making essentially theological statements in uniform. Referring to his military encounter with the Muslim Somali in 1993, Boykin said, I knew my God was bigger than his. I knew my God was a real God and his was an idol. He said this in many places and at many times, and he certainly had a right to such a view as a Christian, at least if he's expressing it in an essentially private context and in a business suit, perhaps. But what about expressing it as a uniformed officer of the U.S. government? As the president put it today in his inauguration address, we cannot carry the message of freedom and the baggage of bigotry at the same time. Now let me turn briefly to the civic arena again, because this is the context for a gathering like this tonight, a public uh, gathering in which the context uh, is multi-religious and my ability to communicate means that I can speak in a bridging language that we share as citizens. How in the public sphere do we recognize the religious diversity of our city, our state, our nation? Now interestingly, there is a whole discourse that is simply about recognition, about 
nodding to the various groups and saying, this is who we are. Um, we see it now as our city officials or our government officials speak of our churches and synagogues and mosques. They don't usually include temples yet. Uh, we saw it in the inaugural today when President Bush spoke of the edifice of character that is sustained by the values of Sinai, the Sermon on the Mount, the Quran, and the varied faiths of our people. So, I mean, it is a sort of public acknowledgement of a we that is broader than a narrow we. And we've seen much of this in the last decade. In the 1990s, there were city councils and legislatures that began to issue holiday declarations and congratulatory proclamations for a whole new set of holidays. The governor of Arizona proclaimed the Buddha's birthday. The state of Michigan uh, honored the 400th anniversary of the uh, Sikh scripture, the Guru Granth Sahib. The, uh, the state of Kansas uh, issued a proclamation on the uh, observance of Ramadan for the Muslim community. And especially since 9-11, these occasions have become ways in which public awareness of the Muslim community has been uh, heightened and educated. The word iftar, for example, has virtually entered the public lexicon as mayors and school superintendents and professors and office co-workers accept the invitation of Muslims to break fast with them at the end of a day of fasting in Ramadan, and that's what the iftar meal is. And there are increasingly visible iftars in congressional office buildings. There was an iftar in the U.S. Pentagon for Muslim and non-Muslim employees. This last year, uh, Colin Powell hosted an iftar in the State Department in which he uh, gave a speech acknowledging the tradition of Muslim hospitality for 1,300 years as the iftar welcomes all in the spirit of brotherhood. So America has been opening and open and welcoming to all as we can see, he said, in the diverse and thriving Muslim communities in America today. But anyway, I want to close with two of the most important of those hot-button issues, and that is, uh, should the Ten Commandments be posted in the courthouse? And, of course, it is a current and clear way of the, of the ways in which uh, symbolic issues have become the focus of our national conversation about the role of religion in our life both civic and religion. We all know too well the story now of Chief Justice Roy Moore in Alabama, who installed a two-and-a-half-ton monument of the Ten Commandments in the federal courthouse. When the constitutional battle ensued, he said, we need to reclaim our biblical heritage. Watch that we. What we are we talking about here? Jews certainly have not joined in uh, the Ten Commandments fray, although Ten Commandments are displayed prominently in most synagogues. And when we have displayed the Ten Commandments, will we, the people, then move to enforce them? As my friend Ellen Goodman put it in a column in the Boston Globe, the Ten Commandments is a crowd-pleasing cause. A huge majority of Americans regard these words as a map for the good life, though an equally large majority has trouble reciting them. <laughs> when was the last time we arrested people at the local mall for dishonoring the Sabbath? When was adultery last a felony? A protester carrying a 10-foot-tall cross in front of the Alabama courthouse said, 
Maybe they can move the monument, but they can't take it out of our hearts. She writes, but of course, that's where it belongs, in our hearts rather than in the courthouse. Judge Moore was removed from his seat on the Supreme Court. An appeal to reinstate him has failed. A Ten Commandments caravan made its way to Washington in the summer of 2003 to uh, protest and advocate for the sanctity of the Ten Commandments. Its advocate said, we are, and again, watch the we, we are not here for a political issue. We are here for the very future and survival of our country, said the Reverend Patrick Mahoney, director of the Christian Defense Coalition. In Montgomery, a fire was lit, and we are taking it to the nation. The Church of Jesus Christ is rising. And indeed, it looks as if the caravan actually arrived in Washington with the Ten Commandments case before us in countless cities, the Bush administration has filed a brief with the U.S. Supreme Court on the two Kentucky cases that it will hear in 2005, urging the court to permit the display of the Ten Commandments in the courthouse. A representative of the Baptist Joint Committee, who is a watchdog for religious freedom in the Capitol, put it this way, and that makes clear the distinction of the voices of which I'm speaking this evening. As a minister, I can think of little better than for everyone to read and obey the Ten Commandments. But as a constitutional lawyer, I can think of little worse than for the government to tell us to do it. Now let me turn to the other one. Uh, I was already eight years old, and I had memorized the Pledge of Allegiance when Congress passed legislation in 1954, adding those words under God. My classmates and I in Longfellow School in Bozeman tripped over them uh, at the beginning. It was more melodious to say, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. But we didn't really trip over the idea under God. We knew pretty much what it meant, God. Um, and of course, in the past 40 years, uh, in the wake of the 65 Immigration Act and all of the new contributors to the American we, that also has become much more complicated. Um, we pledge under God, and we all bring very different ideas of God to that pledge, if we say it in our various languages. Um, we pledge under God and think Vishnu or Shiva or Allah. Uh, all of the different ways in which we construe the image and idea of God. And for some of us, uh, Buddhists, for example, the symbolization of profound reality does not include that symbol God at all. Now, I don't want to enter into the whole disputation about this, but it offers us a very interesting example of the difference between the two perspectives, our religious and our civic uh, from a religious perspective, it offers us a chance to think about those questions. How do I, as a Christian, think about or understand the faith and image of God of the Muslim or the Hindu? We know perfectly well that we bring different images to that pledge. But the other perspective is that of our civic commitments. Uh, not how do I, as a Christian, understand the faith of a Muslim or Hindu, but how do I, as an American, understand the rights and contributions of American Hindus and Muslims? Not what kind of God do I believe in, but what kind of country do I believe in? And how can we build a society, all of us, in which these differences become not the barriers 
to our society building, but the very strengths that we build bring to it. In a multi-religious democracy, then, should Buddhists feel outsiders to the American project if under God is in the pledge? We know about the 50s when it was uh, introduced into the pledge, how President Eisenhower signed the bill into law while a bugle played onward Christian soldiers in the background. We also know that the government may not prefer one religion over another or religion over non-religion. And we know that a Buddhist astronaut died on the Challenger and a Hindu astronaut died on the Columbia. How do we think about these citizens in relation to that pledge? The Buddhist temples uh, in America, many of them signed an amicus friend of the court brief in that case that came up last spring before the Supreme Court, stating their own dilemma, that as Buddhists, they should not be forced to choose between their country and their religion. In asking Buddhist school children to recite the pledge, quote, they are asked to articulate a religious concept irreconcilable with the teachings of their religion and the supreme wisdom, the awakening that is their goal. Let me conclude with a few words about this idea of pluralism. In the hall at Harvard Divinity School, there was a poster last year that said diversity is excellence. Well, in a way it is, but diversity alone is not excellence. Diversity is just a fact, and we may deal with it in excellent or impoverished ways. We may ignore those who differ from us or isolate ourselves from us, from them, or encounter them as fellow citizens or as neighbors of other faiths. So the first thing I would say about pluralism is that pluralism is not just diversity. Diversity is an observable fact of American life today, but pluralism is engagement with that fact. It is uh, traffic, you might say. It is the back and forth, the give and take, even the controversy. Uh, And pluralism is an achievement. It is not simply the fact of our diversity. And in the world that we enter today and will live in for the rest of our lives, diversity without that engagement will be increasingly fractious. Second, I would say that pluralism is not just tolerance. Tolerance is a good thing, but tolerance can create a climate only of restraint, not of understanding. Tolerance does little to bridge the chasms of stereotype and fear that may dominate the mutual image we have of one another. Tolerance is good, but it is far too fragile a foundation for a society that is becoming religiously complex. It can leave in place the old stereotypes, the half-truths, the fears that underlie old patterns of division and violence. And in the world that we will live in for the rest of our lives, tolerance uh, without knowledge will be increasingly difficult. We can no longer afford our ignorance, and that ignorance will be increasingly costly. And finally, I would say that pluralism is not just relativism. It doesn't displace or eliminate our deepest religious convictions. It is rather the encounter of those convictions and commitments. 
Some critics have persisted in linking pluralism with a kind of valueless relativism in which all cats are gray, all perspectives equally viable, and as a result, equally uncompelling. And pluralism, they would say, undermines our distinctive faith. I disagree. Pluralism doesn't mean abandoning our differences, but holding our deepest differences, even our religious differences, not in isolation, but in relationship to each other. And the language of pluralism is the language of dialogue, of give and take, of criticism, and hopefully of self-criticism. And in the world in which we will live for the rest of our lives, that language of dialogue is one that we all need to learn. Today, the U.S. is in the process of understanding itself anew and the meaning of our religious diversity. Who we will be in this new millennium and in this globalizing world. We have the unparalleled opportunity here of building intentionally and actively a culture of pluralism among the many peoples of our cultures and faiths in America. We can build that culture religiously through the interaction of our religious communities and on the common ground of interreligious relationships. And we can and also must build that culture civically in our communities of learning and our communities of, uh, of health and well-being and social services as we enter into relationship uh, as citizens, as co-citizens of a common land. We may not succeed. We may end up finding ourselves ever more fragmented and divided with uh, too much pluribus and not enough unum. But if we can succeed, this, I think, the creation of a vibrant, democratic, and open multi-religious society, a constitutional democracy with freedom of religion for all and the non-establishment of any religion. This is a model and a gift that we can give to ourselves and perhaps the only real gift that we can offer as a model for other nations that are struggling with this same problem. Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. <laughs>